Well, amen. So, so good to be in worship with you all this morning. Welcome again to church. Um, We are so happy uh, that you are here experiencing this moment with us together. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at our church. And again, we're so excited uh, that you uh, this morning are here with us. This morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, where we have been uh, going through chapter by chapter and really understanding this incredible book that is really a, a treaty of so much of the uh, theology of the gospel. And so much of um, the book of Romans is, um, has tentacles all over the place in the Bible. It's one of the most studied books in the Bible. And we're so excited uh, to be able to march through this book uh, along with you. Now, speaking of really important things, um, there is a really great opportunity coming up um, April the 7th here at this church for four weeks. We're going to launch a brand new foundations class called the Gospel Story. And this class is so cool because what we're going to do is we are going to look at the entire Bible from the beginning to the end, and we're going to see how the Gospel ties through the entire thing from Genesis on to Revelation. And we are going to understand just how amazing the Bible really is. We're going to look at the big themes of the Bible, but also we're going to look at individual stories that character those themes. As you can see behind me, we're going to cover a lot in four weeks. And we're so excited uh, to be able to present this class to you. So again, it starts April 7th, goes for four weeks. We want you to come and we want you to commit to being at this class. It's free to you. All we ask is that you sign up on our webpage, all right? Well, like I said, we are going to be in the book of Romans today, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 5. Last week, we looked at the first half of Romans 5, and this week, we're going to look at the last half of Romans 5, starting in verse 12 and going all the way to the end through verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. Starting again, verse 12, chapter 5, or your phones, of course, uh, again, starting at verse 12. Let me read that for you this morning. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18, consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added 
so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you so much for this day and for the opportunity we have this morning to open your word and understand something that you want us to know. And Father, I pray that as we consider Jesus and the gospel and what he's done for us, I pray that you would help us to understand things that we would not normally understand, that you would give light to our thoughts and my voice, that it would do more and be more than it could ever be on its own. We love you so much, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love to watch TV. I'm going to be honest with you. If you were to graph out the hours spent in my week um, doing certain tasks, um, probably TV would make that graph. And the kinds of shows that I love, among the many kinds of shows that I love, are courtroom dramas. I love the drama of the courtroom. And in those classic courtroom scenes, you have your classic courtroom characters. You have that passionate and witty attorney who, with ease, tosses aside all the objections of the prosecution as they perfectly represent the defendant. People we wish we would have had on retainer. But we've also seen the moments where the attorney was actually just the opposite, fumbling through their arguments and objections, making the watcher cringe at their missteps and mistakes, leaving, again, us with this distinct impression that the person being represented is being harmed in some way that almost seems unfair. And in these mostly fictional situations, there are usually two outcomes. Either one side is glad to be represented by such a brilliant representative or actually just the opposite. The representative has done a great disservice to the one they are representing and they are saddled by the weight of the actions of their representative. Now, whether you know it or not, This is almost exactly what our passage is about today. Because fundamentally, the story of the latter half of Romans 5 is about not only how sin and its consequences came to be our own, but also how Jesus and his redemption came to be ours as well. You ever ever stopped and asked yourself the question, why was it that Adam's single sin way back in the New Testament, in the book of Genesis, why his single sin became the sin that all of us are punished for? And then how, on the other hand, was it possible that Jesus' single sacrifice became the act that settled all accounts for people everywhere who would put their faith and trust in that sacrifice? Well, today, our passage actually answers these questions by helping us see that, in fact, Jesus was not only like a second Adam, but in every way, he was the better Adam, a fulfillment of what Adam was supposed to be for humanity, but couldn't 
be. This morning from our reading, we're going to pay close attention to a couple different things. Firstly being the effects that Adam, the first Adam, had as a representative of humanity. Because whether you know it or not, in the, in the true story of God's redemption, we are all, all of us, represented by the actions of Adam. But we're also going to look, secondly, at the effects of Jesus. His effects as another kind of representation of humanity. And how that representation was far different than Adam's. And then finally, we'll finish our message this morning by understanding why Jesus, of course, was the better representative. So to start, let's talk about the effects of Adam. Now, the story of Adam and Eve is a story that many of us know. And if you don't know it this morning, that's fine. We're going to quickly cover it. We find it starting in Genesis chapter 4. In short, God created the world. And he specifically created a place we know as the Garden of Eden. Now, as soon as you kind of hear that place and that phrase, you probably immediately have a picture in your mind of some kind of, of paradise. And that's exactly what it was. You'd be right to think that. Everything that that couple would ever need was found in that place. But the one thing they couldn't have was, of course, the one thing that they ultimately wanted. And that was the fruit from the tree. Now, to be sure, there were all kinds of trees in this garden, but God pointed to a very specific tree that for them was totally off limits. And actually, as far as we know, it was the only restriction that God placed on them. And we know the rest of the story from here. Because the temptation of the fruit tree would prove to be what they would not resist. And both Adam and Eve would go on to eat that fruit that they were commanded not to eat. And in so doing, a thing happened that had never happened before in this young world. Adam not only put separation between him and God, but in many ways that make Adam look an awful lot like a representative of humanity, he defined our default relationship with God. Now, what is our default relationship with God? This might surprise some of you because actually it's not good. It's lostness and it's separation. And it's not the, the kind of innocent lostness and separation. It's a lostness and separation that comes through active hostility. We start as enemies of God. We see this in verse 12 of our chapter today. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And this really frames our problem. Adam rejected the life that God gave and therefore separated himself and by relation, all of humanity, you and me, from God. And whether we like it or not, this is where we stand with God. And then so Adam, as, again, sort of a representative of humanity, chose on our behalf the life and the position that we would take with God. And Adam ultimately did not represent us well. Now, if there's something about what I just said that's a little hard for you to accept, 
or, or hit you in a way that you just kind of don't like, you wouldn't be alone. Because you might ask yourself, <clears throat> how does it come to be that Adam gets to be the one that defines our relationship with God? I mean, who's Adam? Who, who elected, appointed Adam to be the one that represented us? How is it fair that we didn't get our own chance to define ourselves? And the more you think about this, maybe the more deeply unfair that you feel it might be. And we may feel this way because we see it through a certain cultural lens. Because, because traditionally, our culture values the individual above the group. And this morning, we're not talking about whether that's right or wrong. We're just talking about the perspective that we have because this colors our thinking. When we come to this concept, because as the Bible presents it, it's actually just the opposite. Because there is a um, distinct cultural difference between our societies and a lot of other societies around the world and through time in the way that we think about the individual versus the group. Now, hang with me for a second, because this is going to pay off a little bit later, okay? But there is a funny term that describes this concept of group representation, all right? It's called federal headship. Told you it was a funny term. Now, now federal headship is this idea that one person represents another group of people, and that representation really defines the group. And we see this idea in our, in our passages today. We see it unfold in verse 12, and then we see the consequences of the representation in verses 13 and 14. Listen to what it says. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. Do you hear that? Group representation. Then skipping down to verse 18, it goes on to say, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Again in verse 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. And so in a very real way, we are judged by what Adam did. And for those of you who are paying super close attention, you'll see that I'm not actually um, uh, talking about the rest of those verses. I'm actually saving those for the big reveal a little bit later on. So hang on for that. But it's very helpful here to stop and truly understand that our position before God, what it is, and, and I promise this is going to get practical because we are all of us opposed and apart from God at the start. I believe one of the most dangerous detours that people make when they are exploring Christianity or even when they are Christians is that they don't really understand who they are in relation to God. Or I'll just say it a little more bluntly. They don't know how bad they really are. Because, because sometimes I think we have, or I think we think that we have something to offer God. That somehow our relationship with him is a transactional one. Kind of a, you know, you scratch my back and, and I'll scratch yours. But it is not that kind of relationship. In fact, the relationship that we have with God through Jesus demands that it cannot be a casual one. And it can't be casual because, you know, Christians are supposed to be fundamentalist or abstain from everything. 
But it can't be casual because of how desperately we need him to save us. Forget the idea of moralism, the idea of um, earning something by doing good things. Because the reality of our situation is that we are falling off a cliff and we need someone to grab us by the hand or we are going to fall off and die. There is a desperation to our relationship with God. And so you can't have an on and off again relationship with him because he is someone who is your constant rescuer. He didn't just rescue you one time. Day after day after day, this rescuer rescues you. God is here and you are here and the desperation with which you need him cannot be overspoken. I was sitting down with some friends um, earlier this week and we were talking about a little show called This Is Us. I love that show. You can make fun of me all you want, but I love that show. But if you know the show, you'll know that one of the, one of the title characters is a guy named Jack. And Jack is this near perfect character of a husband and a father. And when you, when you watch the show, as a dad or as a husband, you're just taking notes, right? At least, at least I am. He's the kind of husband and the kind of father that really everyone wants to be in life, that really everyone wants to have in life. And of course, a, a friend at the table uh, reminded me that he was actually a, a fictional character. But still, you, you can't help but know him on the show and, and want to be the kind of dad and spouse that Jack Pearson is. But my point in saying this is this. As perfectly crafted as his character is, as, as sacrificial and loving as he is, as inspiring as he can be, even he, Jack Pearson, falls hopelessly short of the standard that God set. Now think about that for a minute. The best of what our minds can create still falls short. This is us, hugely popular show, watched by millions of people every week. And in some ways, the, the best of who we are is, is the, the people who write that show and try to come up with this incredible storyline and this incredible character. And yet even they create a character that falls short of what God desires and requires. And why is that? Well, because of Adam's representation of us. Humanity itself is under a curse, and so it doesn't matter how good he is or we are. And before we kind of get too upset with Adam, just to be honest, we know that we wouldn't have done much better ourselves. I mean, there's a lot to blame Adam for without question. But really, who among us thinks that in a similar situation that we would have done better? Maybe in that moment we wouldn't have eaten the apple or the fruit, whatever fruit it was, but we would have done something else. We would have ultimately defined humanity. We would have separated ourselves. And so for us, it's a pretty bleak picture. What can happen from here? Well, ironically, in comes the second Adam and our second point this morning. Because if Adam's actions had pretty big effects, Jesus' actions had even bigger effects. 
Of course, we know the story of Jesus starts in a manger. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the incarnate word in John chapter 1, there from the very beginning. And he wasn't just any baby, but from the start, he was divine. And, and in every way, Jesus was intentionally born to die. But as Jesus grew from a baby to a child, and a child ultimately to an adult, his mission, as we read it in the Bible, becomes more and more clear in showing this incredible, um, politically unsafe compassion to the people of his day, in teaching bold truths and performing miracles only he could do. He made a name for himself as a leader of the Jewish people. You see, Jesus came not to rule over the people as a king of a nation, but instead to be a sacrifice, the one thing no one expected. And at the very height of his popularity, Jesus would be unjustly arrested, tried, and beaten by the very people he came to save. And Jesus, who was constantly misunderstood as some kind of political revolutionary, would ultimately die like a common criminal hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus would be then ignobly pulled off that cross and put into a tomb. And then the thing we celebrate on Easter morning, three days later, the seal of that tomb would be broken and miraculously, just like he lived, Jesus would humbly find victory over death and lives then and now, today, as a sacrifice for us. And this is where things get interesting because this is where our two atoms come together. And in many ways, here is our big reveal, right? Because if Adam, as our federal head, could represent humanity, all of humanity, and do it so badly, then so could Jesus represent us, but in such a better way. And here is why, on the one hand, this, this concept of, um, of federal headship, of group representation, kind of seems like a really big, bad deal for us. But in reality, it would come to be an incredible picture of God's parental and foreshadowing love for us. Because how could Jesus' sacrifice represent this group of people known as, known as us, known as humanity? Only if Adam's original sin represented that same group. Listen to it for verses 16 and 17. But the gift being Jesus' sacrifice, is not like the trespass, the trespass being Adam's sin. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, again, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Paul would go on to reiterate this same idea just in different words in verses 18 and 19. And, and while all of this results in the belief system that is Christianity, something even more profound happened when Jesus chose to do what Adam did not. And that was obey. 
Think about this for a minute. For Adam, obedience meant life. In other words, if he's obedient, he lives. But for Jesus, obedience meant death. In other words, if he obeys, he dies. And in obeying, Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he did what Adam could not. Because in his obedience, he merited us the gift of eternal life. Again, doing what our federal head was always unable to do. And this little message is the message behind the whole message of the Bible. Because even knowing all this from the beginning, knowing that, that we in Adam, we would always fail. Jesus would and was always going to act as all we needed. And we see this now as really the backdrop of the gospel. Because it didn't matter whether it was Adam or, or us or, or someone else who represented humanity. Again, any one of us would have failed to measure up to that high standard that God would set. And we can complain about that high standard. But our complaints would all discount this incredible reality of God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Sometimes I wonder, as I watch my kids um, melt down over the, the silliest things, like not getting the choice of their movie, not getting a big enough portion of candy, not being able, able to go to the front yard instead of uh, the backyard. I wonder to myself, is that how God sees me? You ever think about that? As, as I watch my kids sometimes with incredulence while they lose their minds, is it possible that my heavenly Father sees me the same way that I see my kids? And I'm not talking about the kind of unhelpful frustration that we sometimes as parents feel with our kids. But I'm talking about us as parents, understanding the bigger picture of our kids' lives and knowing that when they break down over getting the red cup instead of the blue cup, that even though this moment is emotionally destroying their world, we know as parents that they are going to be Okay. And there is a sense in my mind that the same parallel must exist in some way with God as it does with us and our kids. When, when we come to him with, with our life-shaking circumstances, when, when we are on the floor melting down as it were, just like our kids are in front of us melting down sometimes, it's not that he doesn't care. Just like it's not that we don't care about the thing that, that is destroying our kids, because we do, and so does he. But could it be that he understands something about our lives and existence that's far deeper than we can understand, just like we do with our kids? And I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. Comfort to know that while I may be losing it over my circumstances, and friends, sometimes I lose it over my circumstances, there is a God behind me 
who knows more and understands more, sees more than I ever could, and just simply knows what to do next. And so finally, this morning we understand that Jesus truly is the better Adam. That Jesus made all the right decisions as our true federal head that Adam and really by extension all of us could never make. Jesus is like the the hero in this story that sees that the only way to save all the people is to sacrifice themselves. Except in this story, God in Jesus knew this from the beginning and he went through it all so that we might see, so that we might have the privilege and insight of seeing the incredible and marvelous depth of his love for us. We finish up the last two verses in 20 and 21 and see Paul talking about when the law came, our sin increased. Well, why did that happen? Well, because we had a knowledge of it. At that point, we knew right from wrong. And so then not only were we condemned because of Adam, but to make it worse, now it's clear we're condemned because of our own sin. But then, of course, that incredible line in verse 20 where it says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Again, just to make it clear, God did it all on purpose. He did it all on purpose to show that the true Adam, the Adam that was always meant to be, would be the one who would be representing you and I. Because it is in this Adam where grace reigns through his obedience, that itself led to death and by his sacrifice would itself merit for us what we could never merit on our own to what verse 21 finally says as eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And friends, this morning I'm telling you that that if all this is actually true that we have gone over in this latter half of Romans this morning, that if it's really true, I am telling you that there is nothing like it in all the world. If it's true, it doesn't even, it doesn't even compare to anything else, made up or otherwise. It would have to be, by definition, worth giving our lives for. If you were convinced this morning that that it is true, how could we not but spend all our days not only giving thanks to the one who, who, who made this all possible, but getting out there and telling others the same incredible truth and gift that has been given to them? And I would tell you this morning that if for the first time you would be convinced that this is true, then I would ask you, what would you do differently today because of your renewed knowledge or your your first knowledge of God's incredible working on your behalf through Jesus? How would this incredible love that was shown to you, how will it shape your parenting and the way that you treat your kids? How will it affect the way that you love and treat your spouse? How will this change the way you, you spend your money, you give your time, and you spend your talents? And then on the other hand, if you are here and again for the first time, believe what the word of God has said this morning, 
then I would say it's time for you to decide to follow Jesus. There are tables in this room where where people this morning would pray for you. And the front of the church is always open for you to receive Jesus, for you to to plead with Jesus for help, or or just thank him for the immeasurable gift of obedience that he's given to you. Because church, foundational truth in my life, Jesus is always better. And I'm so thankful this morning that he represents me. And I wonder if you would feel the same way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the gift of your love. That it wasn't just a simple act, but it was this incredible story that has been unfolding for millennia. And in a way, all for us to be privileged to see it and to know the immeasurable depth of your love and sacrifice for us. Because it wasn't just the one act, as amazing as it was, of Jesus dying on a cross and coming back to life. That was just the tip of the iceberg. All the things that you did and all the things you established to show us the incredible workings of your love and ultimate representation of us, of doing for ourselves, or of doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, I pray this morning as we continue to study these, these passages in Romans that you would open our eyes to who you are and God, what you have done for us. We love you this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. 